So we turn to God's word. We come to the epilogue of the book, book of Joshua today. The final words. This is Joshua chapter 24. It's on page 199. If you have one of the pew Bibles, we'll be looking at verses 29 through 33. Uh, Joshua and the people had gathered for Joshua's uh, last summons at Shechem. And here we see the rest of the story, some of which obviously is worked out at Shechem as well. Let's pray and then we'll read God's word. Lord, we thank you for the goodness of the book of Joshua, for the way in which you have led us through it these many months. And we thank you that uh, even as it is drawing to a conclusion here before our eyes, we thank you that uh, these beloved saints live on before you. And we thank you for the hope that their testimony gives us. So we pray that we would all be pointed more and more to Jesus Christ today. We ask this in his name. Amen. This is God's word, Joshua 24, beginning at verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar the son of Aaron died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas his son, which had been given to him in the hill country of Ephraim. Thus ends this reading of God's holy word. May he write it on our hearts today and forever. You've perhaps seen the TV show Good Bones, which is set right here in the city of Indianapolis, in which a mother-daughter team get together, and uh, they take old homes that have good bones. They may be in some state of disrepair, but they fix them up. They flip them. And the idea is that while the shell may be decaying, the bones, the essential structure is good and it's healthy. And there's life yet to be had. As we come to the book of Joshua's conclusion, in these verses, you'll notice there's one really strange thing going on. I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? The book begins with triumphs, as Matthew Henry says, and it ends with funerals. In one sense, we could say that the book of Joshua ends on a real downer, right? It's the story of these people's lives, and we end with these funerals and burials. But there is this one really odd thing here in verse 32, and that has to do with the bones of Joseph. Why would we have this record of Joseph's bones being dealt with here? Well, you think about bones, and they are sort of essential to our being. Um, Joseph's bones were carried up from Egypt here and they represented something and, and they are our structure. Children, you might want to draw a picture of your own skeleton here today, but your bones not only provide structure, they do more than that. You know, your bones are busy making stuff. Even as we're sitting here, your bones are cranking out red blood cells that are going to carry the oxygen and the carbon dioxide all around your body. And it's very exciting if you can get a window into what's going on there. Your, your bone marrow is producing white blood cells and they're getting ready to fight disease. 
And then platelets are also being produced so that uh, kids, if you're out afterwards uh, uh, playing on the playground or you skin up your knee, those platelets will get busy plugging up the hole. Lots of exciting stuff happening in your bones, even as you're sitting here, because you're alive. And it's really good stuff. But we know as the, the people of God that the bone, our bones also remind us of our mortality. We have older people who are sitting here and sometimes the cartilage wears out between their bones and if it gets really quiet in here, you might hear an older person stand up and you might actually hear the bones talking. Bone on bone. Pain probably shooting through their body and it's a reminder that they're getting old. And when we think about that reality, we have mothers who are sitting here and inside their wombs, the bones of their children are coming together. And it's a beautiful thing. It's an awe-inspiring thing, but it's also a humbling thing because we know that those bones will also one day rest in a grave. When we think about our own sin, there's some truth with regard to our sin and our sinful condition and what we deserve with the saying with which you're well acquainted, which says, beauty is only skin deep, but just remember, ugly goes all the way to the bone. This is the nature of our sinful and fallen state. Down, down to our very bones, we're tainted by evil. And thus we're subject to the curse and to death itself. And so Joseph's bones in this passage are, are not filled with life. They're not producing platelets. They're not producing red blood cells and white blood cells. They got a box of bones that they've carried up from Egypt. What is the significance of all of this? But we're going to see in this passage uh, a little bit of structure that will hopefully help us. It's a countdown to the end of the book of Joshua. That'll be our, our skeleton, as it were, of this passage. And I, I hope what you'll see from this is that these bones lead us to see something that goes very far beyond the dry and dusty bones of Joseph. But our structure is going to be a countdown. We're going to start with three. So children, you know, if you start with three, what comes after that? Two in a countdown. And what comes after that? One, right. Okay, so it's countdown, not count up. We're starting with point three, as it were. And when you look at this story, there are three burials. We're just going to get acquainted here, right? There are three burials. So you see these three burials. The, the first of these is the burial of Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun, he's the servant of the Lord. He dies being 110 years old. And they bury him in his inheritance at Timnath Sarah. It's in the hill country of Ephraim, which is north of the mountain of Gash. There's a, a second burial. And that is in verse 32. And I've already made reference of this to this, but we see it more explicitly. There is the burial of Joseph. The people of Israel brought uh, his bones up from Egypt and they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. We'll have more on that in a little bit. And then the third burial that is here is the burial of Eliezer, the son of Aaron. And they bury him at Gibeon in the town of Phinehas, his son. So we've got three burials. Secondly, though, you'll see we get essentially two funerals. We don't actually get three funerals here, but we get two funerals. And what are these two funerals? Well, the two funerals are for Eliezer and Joshua. And I want to begin here with uh, uh, Eliezer's funeral. 
Well, why are we going to the funerals? Well, because the funerals begin to speak something more of the, the character of these people and their lives. We know that, guess what? We're all going to end up in the grave. We're all going to be buried if the Lord tarries, just like these three who were buried. But there will be things that will be said. There will be a, a legacy that you leave behind. What is it that is reflected upon as we come to this conclusion? Well, you see, the the first of these that we're going to look at is Eliezer. It's in verse 33. There's a a point that is made. Now, Eliezer is kind of the John Adams, if you will, of the priesthood. Uh, His father, uh, Aaron, of course, was the first high priest, and uh, he had some brothers, but he was the one who became the high priest. And he has a very prominent role even through the book of Joshua. As he's often standing beside Joshua as land divisions are made and this kind of thing. Um, his brothers, Nadab and Abihu, in Numbers chapter 3, verse 4, offered strange fire before the Lord. They were the ones that should have been in line before him. But the Lord struck them down because of their unfaithfulness. But Eliezer remained faithful to the Lord. And then we see in Numbers chapter 25, verses 10 through 13, more of his legacy. And this has to do with his son, Phineas. Phineas at Baal of Peor, where the people of God started to go worshiping other gods, was the one who stepped up and he put to death one of the sons of Israel who was committing adultery with one of the women who was leading them into idolatry. And we're told in Numbers chapter 25, verse 10, that the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. This was Eliezer's son, but you you see something of the heritage that's being passed down to his son that's being lived out in his household. He would be well remembered by the people of Israel for this kind of zeal for holiness that filled his heart. And again, as already noted, you can read through the book, the pages of Joshua all over again, and you'll see that Eliezer keeps popping up. He's standing beside Joshua at many key junctures. He was a key leader there among the people of God, and he was to be well remembered. And then the second funeral that you'll see here, more attention is given to Joshua in verses 29 and 30. And I give more attention to this here second because he is uh, the leader of Israel all of these uh, years. We're not exactly sure how long he lived in the land. Some scholars say as few as 17 years, other as many as 28. So it's probably somewhere in that amount of time uh, that he lived helping the people of God conquer uh, the promised land and then uh, taking up his possession. But notice his legacy here. He is first of all called the servant of the Lord. He's called the servant of the Lord. Now, if you go back and you can do this later to the first verse of this book, you'll notice that he was taking the position of another man, Moses, who was also what? The servant of the Lord. Here's the legacy that Joshua is leaving behind. He's simply one who is a servant. And uh, this is what we all long to hear as the people of God. Those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew Henry points out, you'll do really well in life if all that is said of you is the same thing that is said of these men. You were just a servant of the Lord, maybe forgotten by everyone else, 
but you serve the Lord. Because this is what our Savior Jesus Christ has done. He's come to be a servant to us. And we are called as those made in his image to submit to him and to serve him as well. Well, uh, this is the testimony of God's people through the ages, whether it's Paul who calls himself a servant of the Lord in the outset of his letters like Romans and Philippians. uh, it, It is our desire as well. And it's interesting too, the legacy that's left here of Joshua, not only that he's servant of the Lord, but also that Israel served the Lord in verse 31 as they thought about this legacy. All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. When, when we're at a funeral, we think about the character of a person's life very often, which can be a good and righteous thing to do as we remember the benefits that God has given. And, and what does it inspire us to do if it's someone who has served the Lord well? It inspires us to be like them. And Joshua was one, a servant of the Lord, who kept pointing people to Jesus. And as long as he and the other elders who had seen the mighty works of God were alive... The people served the Lord. But what is it that happened? Well, if you flip over just a page to the book of Judges, you'll see in chapter 2, verse 6, that Joshua dismissed the people. They each went to take possession of the land. And then if you look at verse 11, it says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals. And this is because, as you see in verse 10, which I skipped over there, that all that generation, they were gathered to their fathers, and this other generation arises that didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, the point as we think about Joshua's funeral here is this, is that a legacy is a good thing. But you know what? Joshua's legacy died out. The legacy of other godly people has died out and been forgotten as well. Because it's not enough to hold us to the Lord. It is not enough to sustain us. And as well as you may seek to live the Lord, live to serve the Lord, that's not going to sustain the next generation either. You're going to die and be buried. You may have a funeral and a good legacy may be set forward, but even that will give you nothing, ultimately. We see that we get three funerals, uh, sorry, three, three burials and two funerals. But what is it we need? We need the one hope, one hope that this passage points us to that is seen most explicitly in the bones of Joseph, right? Our lives are going to wear out and come to an end. Our legacy will not survive, humanly speaking, but there is one hope that we have. As for the bones of Joseph, verse 32 says, the people of Israel brought up from Egypt and they buried them at Shechem. They buried these bones at Shechem. Now, why is this significant? Well, if you think back to uh, uh, Joseph's funeral, rather, in Genesis chapter 50, as he's getting ready to die, and it's curious, he lived 110 years. Familiar number, isn't it? Joshua lived 110 years. So there's a a parallel being drawn here. Um, And they uh, have his bones because back in, uh, uh, they bring his bones to this particular place because back in Genesis chapter 48, so this is before actually Jacob dies, 
he makes a promise to Joseph. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want to Genesis chapter 48, verses 21 and 22, or just listen along. It says, then Israel or Jacob said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I've given to you rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And you might have a footnote there in your Bible that says that uh, that idea of one portion of the land is the, the idea uh, is the Hebrew sounding word Shechem. Maybe very well pointing to Shechem. I've given you Shechem for you to be buried. And so here's Joseph who knows that the people of God are going to be in Egypt for another 400 years. But he's believing the promise of God that God has given him a plot of land back there in Palestine. And so uh, we see then in, in, in Joseph's mind, he's laying hold of the promises that God had made to Abraham When God appeared to Abraham in this same spot as we saw it last week in Genesis chapter 12. Joseph's hope was in the promises that God had made to his forefathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. This was the source of his hope. And so in Genesis chapter 50, as Joseph is getting ready to die, he says to his brothers and to the rest, I'm about to die. This is Genesis 24 through 26. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put into a coffin in Egypt. So here they are, carrying Joseph's coffin Lo, these 400 years later, out of Egypt for this burial. These are a strange people. Yes, they are a strange people, and we are a peculiar people too, because we see the hope that resides even in these bones. Joseph, you see, had faith. He believed the promise of God. He was looking forward to someone, the seed of the woman who was going to come. And so that is why in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, it says this, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph was filled with faith. He knew that something more was coming. He knew that his life was ending in a funeral and a burial. And so it was for Joshua, and so it will be for you and for me. But he was looking by faith to something even beyond this world. And so after giving us that record of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, the the writer says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joseph didn't get in his lifetime 
what he was looking forward to. He didn't even get it fully 400 years later, but he wanted to pass on a message to his descendants that he believed. And that he knew that even though sin may go with all of its ugly all the way to the bone, that God in his redeeming grace leads his people to an exodus from death to life. And that even his dry and dusty bones would be united to his savior. And that he was looking forward to seeing his savior face to face, just like Job of old. So he was filled with faith in a coming savior And we're called here in Hebrews chapter 11 and then in verse 12 to look to the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, which is the same faith that Joseph had. What do you think is going to happen to your bones, dear friends? The prophet Ezekiel wondered the same sort of thing in Ezekiel chapter 37, and I want you to turn there now because this gets us really to the the marrow of the matter, if you will. Ezekiel chapter 37, turn in your Bibles there. If you've got one of the the pew Bibles, it's uh, in in pages uh, 724 and 725. The prophet is... uh, is speaking in the name of the Lord. And as the Lord reveals himself to the prophet, we're told in verse one that the hand of the Lord was upon Ezekiel. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me all around them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. So children, you you see what's going on? God takes the prophet Ezekiel and he moves him to a valley. And this valley is filled with all kinds of bones. And these are humans' bones. These, these aren't just bones of a cow that maybe your parents picked uh, off the, the meat off of after you grilled out or whatever. These aren't just chicken bones that you, you ate uh, the drumstick and, and then you threw away the bone. No, these are human bones. And they're dry and they're dusty. Lots of them. And what does the Spirit say to Ezekiel? He says in verse 3, Son of man... Can these bones live? What do you think? Can dry and dusty bones live? Bones like Joseph's bones? Well, let's keep reading. Ezekiel answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So you hear what God said? He said to Ezekiel, You tell these bones, live. And they're going to live. Now, has it happened yet in the story that we're reading? No, it hasn't happened yet. So we have to keep reading. So verse 7 says, Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And all the bones came together, bone to its bone. 
And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What an incredible sight that the prophet Ezekiel sees here. First of all, these dry bones that he's called to prophesy to, and he he says to the bones that they should live, and they all start snapping together. And then he's called to prophesy to the breath that breath would fill them, and they come to life. And there's this great army. And so, We see in verse 11 that the Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They're the whole of the church. They're the whole of the people of God. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Friends, this is good news And it's not merely speaking as we look at the whole of scripture of just talking about physical bones being raised in the resurrection. We know that there's another resurrection that comes first. It is the resurrection of the souls of people when the spirit of God comes upon a a dead sinner who is apart from the grace of God and deserving the wrath of God. And when God says to his spirit, "You, you blow on that individual person. And the spirit comes to a person and brings regeneration and brings life. And what happens to that person? Their spiritual bones come together and they live and they have life and they breathe and the spirit dwells in them. And if you've come to Jesus Christ, you know this experience. You've been born again. Not physically for the first time, but spiritually for the first time as one who has come to know the living and true God. And how is it that we can know that this will most certainly come to pass? It is because there's another set of bones that died once and has come to life again. And you know when this happened. It happened at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea 2,000 years ago. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, not one of his bones was broken to fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 34, which we'll sing in a few moments. And Jesus endured the wrath of God and he died. And his bones stopped producing red blood cells. And they stopped producing white blood cells. And they stopped producing platelets. And there was no more breath in Jesus. He lay still and cold in his tomb. And he died on our behalf. 
but he died in service to his father and in service to you. Because though he died bearing our sins in his body, he did so to propitiate the wrath of God and to take away the cause of death itself. And on the third day, his bone marrow started working again. Those platelets started to stir. The red blood cells started to be made again as well as the white blood cells. And Jesus came to life. And he rose victorious to declare his victory over death. This is a miracle, friends. And this is the miracle that we gather to celebrate every single week. The vision of Ezekiel in chapter 37, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Can those bones live? We don't say, oh, oh Lord, you know. No, no. We say, we do know because we've seen it. And we can testify that Jesus Christ lives. And because he lives, our bones can live too. And you know what? This is not just hope for people who are coming to the end of the book of their life. It's not like all of this is just given so that when you die, you can know that there's something beyond this this world. It's a wonderful comfort in that regard. But this is good for more than simply that. Because you see, if we embrace Jesus Christ, we are then able to embrace our mortality and we are able to embrace our future in this life and the life to come. And that's really what this passage in Joshua chapter 24 calls you to. It is to embrace Jesus Christ with the same kind of faith that Joseph had. And as you embrace Jesus Christ, you're able to face your mortality. And death won't scare you, at least not in the same way. And it not only prevents you from having ultimate fear of death, but it does more than that. It shows you that your God is going to lead you even through the course of this life. Because these words were written not for Joshua's sake. They weren't written for Eliezer's sake. They weren't written for Joseph's Joseph's sake. These guys all died. They didn't need this written word anymore. Who's it written for? It's written for you and it's written for me. And Joseph's bones show up in one other place that illustrate this for us very vividly. I want you to turn to uh, to Exodus, rather, chapter 13. And in Exodus chapter 13, we have the people of God who uh, have celebrated the Passover. Uh, The house of Egypt has been struck down by the angel of the Lord. He's uh, entered every home and struck down the firstborn of those who were not covered by the blood of the lamb. And The people, they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They go wandering out into the wilderness, and they're experiencing now freedom from the Egyptians, but they are now in trouble of another sort. Uh, So they go out and look at Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So what on earth is going on here? The people of God are going out, and God, instead of leading them right into war, he leads them actually into a cul-de-sac, into a dead end, where they're going to have no hope. 
And then look at verse 19. Seemingly out of nowhere, we see Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And then it says that they moved on from there to Succoth. Why do Moses' bone, why does Moses taking Joseph's bones show up here in this particular place? I mean, it's really weird, isn't it? Why they're here. Well, we have to keep reading. Verse 20, they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Why is it that Joseph's bones show up in this particular place? Well, it's because the people needed to be reminded of their eternal hope and of the life that God had promised to his people and the fact that he would lead them to their ultimate home just as Joseph believed. And how was he going to do that? How was he going to affirm those promises to them even as they walk through the course of this life? It's going to be by giving his spirit to them as pictured here in giving the pillar of uh, fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day in order to lead the people in the ways of God. Why did the bones of Joseph matter? Well, they matter because they lead us to a faith like Joseph's. And when we have that kind of faith, we have confidence not only in the life to come, but even in this life that God's Holy Spirit who gives us life will lead us every step along the way, by day and by night. The promise is good for you and for me. And so as we come to the conclusion of the book of Joshua, we're called, even as we move beyond these characters who are dead and buried, to remember the same thing that Joseph wanted his descendants to remember, that God raises the dead and that he is worthy of our faith because he not only raises the dead, but he also promises that he's going to lead us through this life, that our bones even are very precious in his sight and that he cares about us all the way to the bone. And that as we walk through this life, we can rest secure knowing that we are embraced by our God in all of life, even in death itself, to the resurrection and to the praise of his glory for all of eternity. That's where Joshua ends. So let's embrace the same Savior by faith, the same Savior that Joseph looked forward to and that Joshua knew who has been revealed to us and whose bones, whose good bones are raised for us today so that we in our flesh and blood might walk with God today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you make dead bones live. And so we thank you that you call us to believe it and you call us to live and to walk by faith. So Lord, we thank you that you are a God who didn't allow Jesus' bones to be broken there upon the cross to fulfill prophecy. And we thank you that all of your promises are yes and they're amen in Christ. And we pray that you would give us grace to believe so that we might have life. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.